Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and advice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. Today, we're answering questions about the process of writing and publishing a nonfiction book. So we've both written books, so we hope our answers are gonna be helpful. One listener asked us about the tools they should use to research and write a book. And another listener working on their second book asks if traditional publishing is worth it or not. Hopefully our editors don't hear that one. And you know, finally, we get asked about how authors can build online audiences. All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Victoria from DC. And my question for you is, what tools do you use to research and write your book? Um, do you use any special writing software that you found effective? I, I I love this question and also hate this question. I mean, Victoria, I don't hate <laughs> you. I just, because I think that as writers and I think in any creative craft, sometimes you can become very tool obsessed. It's almost a way to sometimes deflect some of the actual things that can make us more or less productive. So with that disclaimer, yeah. You know, and yeah. externalize the blame for yes. when your writing <laughs> looks terrible once you reread it. Yeah. So, Victoria, that's not a criticism. Don't worry. But um, I do use a bunch of tools when I write and I research. I use this tool called Workflowy that is a infinite outline tool. So basically, you outline, mm. and every bullet of your outlines can have infinite outlines under it, and that can extend indefinitely. So it's a bit of a like mind trip to think about. But what it allows you to do is as you research, any point can basically become this much more expansive point. And so I'd actually be curious to how your research process looks. But for me, I actually outline the entire book before I even start writing. So I've essentially outlined in great detail every single argument, detail, fact, point before I start writing the prose. And that's just for me because I'm a very sort of single stream thinker. And those are different activities for me. Like first I need to think and then second I need to write and make it entertaining and useful and all those things. Yeah. I, I didn't know about workflow. I might've heard about it, but, uh, but it sounds great. Like I already want to use it. So <laughs> for me, my main tools are sticky notes and Evernote. But the, the point that you just made, Alan, I think is exactly, it's what I've developed into or evolved into as a writer is uh, that thing that I, I think I tell you all the time, Alan, that great writing is only one third writing is what my favorite editor said. The other two thirds are the research and the thinking. And, you know, if you don't do the thinking beforehand, you start writing, it's going to be a lot harder. You're going to have to do a lot more revisions. It's, you know, you want to kill the, the things that you want to kill early in the process before you write them down, right? The kill your darlings saying, kill them early on before they grow up into, you know, adult darlings or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but that in general, and actually you see a lot of great writers who, who do this as their process. It's not the only process, but Michael Lewis comes to mind, who's uh, someone that I'm a big fan of. He allegedly, what he does, he does so much research and thinking and outlining uh, ahead of time that by the time he sits down to write the book, he doesn't need to look at his notes mm. because he's already done all the thinking. And of course he does look at his notes, but he doesn't need to. So that I think is a, a very interesting method to save yourself pain in the editing process. 
For me, tool-wise, what I use is Evernote as my primary kind of research and organization tool. I use the Clipper thing Mm -hmm. in Chrome so that you can clip down articles and research and stuff. Uh, I use lots of checkboxes within Evernote to uh, organize what I'm going to go after and try and answer and solve. Then my main thing that I do, that uh, I I wonder if you do a version of this, Alan, at the different stages of my own writing and revising process, I will switch mediums or media. So I'll write the first draft of uh, a chapter using Evernote as my notes, and I will type the draft up in Google Docs, and then I will print it out, and then I will edit with a red pen on paper, and then I will take that red pen printout, and I will rewrite it usually not in Google Docs, usually in some other thing like Word or, mm. you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I'll type it up in, uh, you know, in something different like like Evernote again. The idea is that by switching the medium that it's in, it allows me psychologically to kind of let go of the last version of it. This mm. is a new thing I'm working on. This is like I, or just, I guess, not kind of gloss over the things that I've looked at a million times in that same format. So I actually me, do the same the, thing with the paper. I I, I, okay. I don't do the I don't do the sort of switching editors, although that's interesting. I also know some people will change the font size during different stages mm-hmm. of writing because it cognitively shifts. But I found that the paper editing is a game changer, and even just too because I can, if I'm working on something, I can print it out. I have a laser printer. That's a key tool for a writer. <laughs> And yeah. I can print it out and like go to a coffee shop and these days it's all outside tables and like sit outside and do an edit and just cognitively there's something about that shift. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the same thing with the the note taking and the thinking, the research, you know, taking notes in an online tool or digital tool, but then transferring those notes to sticky notes or note cards, organizing them visually, putting them all out on a table or a wall so you can see the whole thing at once then you know, moving things around and using that to then type up your outline. I do that sort of thing all the time, switching even at that non-drafting stage. Uh, yeah, so it sounds like you actually know a bit of the, the science behind the cognitive shift thing uh, that happens there. Is there something scientific to that? I wish I knew the deep science. I just know the personal experience, which has just been, I seem to write better and edit better when I do that. And I'm not, I'm not sure why, but I'll take it. Um, the, the one thing that I'll say that it does make me think of, you're familiar with this, the uh, the work on creativity around how when you leave your home environment or you travel to somewhere that's a different culture, it allows you to rethink things that you uh, take for granted back home. It makes it easier for your brain to kind of do that, to let go of things and consider that there's other ways of seeing things or doing things. And that's why the trope of, you know, the, the artist going to Paris and being inspired because uh, they let go of the things that they take we for granted. Paris. Big croissant family I love, here. I love, love Paris. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, one of these episodes will have to have a creative disagreement about the best bread. Oh. Because is it croissant? Oh. Uh, I mean, an almond croissant is pretty hard to beat. It's basically butter and sugar. I mean, that's – I don't even know if that's bread though, right? Is a pastry a bread? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question because I – once I discovered pão de queijo in Brazil, Brazilian cheese bread, that's the only thing that I think is a contender that is good. to the croissant. I've had that. That is really good. Not in Brazil. I'm not as hip as you, but I've had it in America and it's really good. Um, so in answer to Victoria's question, <laughs> Poncha Queijo, Parisian croissants, and I, those and, are the tools of the writer. And I also use uh, Grammarly, which I find is really helpful. And I'm a big Microsoft Word proponent. I've never used one of these sort of 
Scrivener or any of these fancy writing tools. It sounds like, you know, Shane is a Word and Google Drive pe- person, but I, I stick with the basics. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, I think it's time now for a segment called Who Said What? Who Said What is a funky trivia game where one of us takes a pithy quote by someone famous and creative, and the other one has to guess who really said it. And so recently we had an episode where Alan and I talked about creative identity and the nature of identity itself, and it got all existential. Great episode. Go check it out if you haven't. But I've been thinking about what we talked about in that episode a lot over the last few weeks. So today's Who Said What is a quote that kind of has to do with that, the idea of identity. So are you ready, Alan, to guess who said this quote? I am so ready. Let's go. Okay. (laughs) So the quote is, your inability to see yourself clearly is the only thing keeping you alive. Whoa. So what famous creative person said this quote? Your inability to see yourself clearly is the only thing keeping you alive. Your three choices are the great Sarah Silverman, the inimitable Caitlin Olson, or the unstoppable Chris Rock. Three comedians, very creative people, very different styles, but which one of them said your inability to see yourself clearly is the only thing keeping you alive? Well, first of all, this is a depressive quote. So that's the first thought I have. (laughs) Second thing, I have a great Sarah Silverman story I feel like I need to tell you now. Okay. So Uh, let's uh, let's do that now, yeah. I I was in Los Angeles and... I was in, I needed sunglasses and I went into, there's a Fred Siegel there and I went to go look at sunglasses. I'm like trying them on and whatever. And I looked to my right and there's Sarah Silverman trying on glasses. What? And I know. And at some point we're like doing our thing. She like turns to me and says, what do you think of these? And like shows me her glasses. And I was like, I think they look great. And she was like, what about these? And I was like, I don't like those. She was like, okay, helpful. And then I asked her about my sunglasses and she gave me great advice on sunglasses and I bought the sunglasses and they're great. <laughs> and I had them for years and she was so friendly. So she, I don't think she's a depressive. So, you know, I think maybe, you know, she sometimes plays a little sardonic on TV, but I think she seems like a, actually a pretty happy person. So I don't think it was her. Mm-hmm. Okay. It does not sound like a Chris Rock quote. He's, I feel like a little more slapsticky, sticky sometime in his humor. And I have no idea who Kaylin Olsen is. <laughs> oh, no. Well, anyone who's listening also has no idea who Caitlin Olsen is. Uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. She's D. She's also the star of The Mick, which I think is one of the most underrated comedies. I think she's one of the best comedians. Either of those. I I think she's one of the best comedians of uh, of her generation. Um, Definitely check her out. But you have no idea who she is. You don't know if. uh, I have no idea who she is. You're going to pick. But I think from a deductive reasoning perspective, if Sarah Silverman is actually secretly not depressive and Chris Rock doesn't really sound like a him thing, I'm going to go with the mysterious unknown to me, Caitlin Olsen. No! (laughs) So uh, it turns out that your hero and fashion consultant, Sarah Silverman, actually said this. This is actually from a comedy special of hers. Yeah, it's a it's a joke, not a uh, not a real quote, I guess. Uh, that's a, not a not a non jokey quote. So your inability to see yourself clearly is the only thing keeping you alive as part of her comedy set. 
I hear she is a great uh, and, and very nice, caring person in real life. I, I've yeah, heard that, that was very much the well. vibe I got. Like, I got the positive energy. But, you know, okay, I should have, I should have, professionally, she is quite sardonic. I think that's the word that would describe it. I think so. So, yeah. so oh, damn it. I hate what I lose. But, uh, <laughs> but from now on, whenever we're out and uh, you're wearing sunglasses, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell people, These you know, Sarah, Sarah Silverman, Silverman bought him these sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. It's all happening. She picked them out. Bought him for him, gave him, uh, gave him his present. <laughs> All right. Well, in my in my jaws of defeat, let's go back to the voicemail. I can distract myself from the woes of failure. Hey, Alan and Shane. This is Jay from Boston. Um, I've actually written one nonfiction book already in my career, and I went the hybrid publishing route. So I did all of the creative stuff and then handed the transcript and the design to uh, a publishing service that helped me take it home, helped me make it into a product that people could purchase all the places you purchase books. For my next book, it's kind of this looming question. Do I go the traditional publisher route? It feels a little archaic. It almost feels like it's just looking, you're looking for a stamp of approval for your ego more than anything. What are the advantages of going to the traditional publishers in this digital age? Thanks for all you do and congrats on the show. All right. Well, thanks, Jay from Boston. I, I have a lot of thoughts on this one myself because I've published three books with three different traditional publishers, Wiley, HarperCollins, and Penguin. And there's a lot of things that are similar across the board with publishing across these three different ones. And there's some things that are different. And I have thought every time, except maybe for my first book, about uh, going a hybrid or, or self-publishing route. Every time, it seems like I've thought through it and decided to go with the traditional publisher. And I think when I do my next book, I will lean more heavily towards a hybrid or uh, independent publishing model. And that's because the main things that I've gotten value out of from the traditional publishers are editorial help, you know, great editors who know books, who've been doing books for a long time, a brand name. So having HarperCollins on your book does set it apart from a book that is self-published or published by a you know brand that people don't know, um, and uh, and then there's kind of the strategy of authoring and publishing that you get from them, but that one you get after your first one, and you can get I think a lot of strategy advice from people like Alan Gannett and the rest of the internet, and maybe a little from me. The brand name I think once you've done it once, you don't really need that shine added to your personal brand. Like you you already have that stamp of credibility. Um, and the editorial help, you can hire great freelancers. I started a company that helps connect freelance editors with brands. And so I have access to that. So that's why I keep considering going more independent, but I kind of think of it like when you're applying to college nowadays, I think if I had a kid who was thinking about going to college, the advice that I would give them is if you can get into Harvard, go to Harvard. Because that Harvard shine and the network you get is going to follow you your whole life. And there is a lot more value to that than you think. But if you're just going to go to, you know, a smaller school, I went to a small school in Idaho for undergrad, you might consider just going to a code boot camp or going to journalism boot camp or a trade school or, or just getting your education from the internet. Go to Seth Godin's online, you know, business college thing. Uh, because the education, the learning, you can get a lot of places versus the, you know, the brand shine you can only get from a few places and that's worth the money. But I think of it kind of similarly, if you can get one of the big publishers to back you and your book, 
there's a trade-off, it's less money, uh, you know, royalty wise, and you're still going to do a lot of work. The marketing's on you. A lot of the stuff is on you. However, you get that credibility, which I think can be very worth it. And if you're not, if you're going to get a publisher that is less well-known, really consider keeping all of the royalties. You're going to be doing a lot of the work anyway, and uh, you can learn how to do everything you need to do. And you can hire the people you need to hire for cheap and for cheaper than I think the royalty split that you'll give away. That would be my advice. So I agree with most of it ish, ish, ish. Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the things that people maybe misunderstand is they don't quite get the business model of being an author these days and what that looks like. And there's a few different dimensions. So one is that the actual book process can be something that is financially sustainable. And there's a few different ways of why or how. So first, a lot of these mainstream publishers, if you're able to get like HarperCollins or Penguin or any of these, pay reasonable advances that are not mm-hmm. insignificant. The other thing is with nonfiction work these days, there's a huge international market. I think people don't wrap their head around this. So, mm-hmm. you know, my book, for example, is big in Korea, right? And I know Shane's first book is All big right. in Japan. Yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> and, and so there's this big international market that I think a lot of times people don't wrap their head around until they've done the book process once. And what I found is that having a mainstream publisher is sort of almost essential to getting a lot of those foreign rights deals. And those foreign mm-hmm. rights deals are really great because you don't do any more, more work. They take the book, they translate it, they do everything, and they just send you a check. And so I think just from a business model perspective, that's one. The other thing is a lot of times these days, writers sort of monetize their careers through things like speaking or maybe consulting. And when it comes to those, having that shine that Shane, you talked about is really helpful because it's so easy to self-publish a book these days that I think it can feel a little noisy to people of, oh, okay, you published Mm -hmm. a book, but everyone publishes a book these days versus, oh, you published a book from HarperCollins it immediately sort of sets a different sort of register. So I generally tell people pretty similar advice, especially with your first book of your first time author. I think it's hugely helpful to have a mainstream publisher and it may be theoretically less lucrative on that book in English edition versus if you were able to sell the same amount of copies. But the long-term benefit to your career is really there. The ability to access foreign markets is there. Now, I think if you already have a huge online audience and you, you know, maybe you've already published one book, I think then it could make more sense to go with a hybrid or self-publishing because you're going to be able to create your own success. You're going to be able to monetize that. But I, I know a lot of people, like we both know John Lee Dumas, who's the host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. Mm-hmm. He did three self-published books and now he's doing a book. I think it's with HarperCollins. And he talks about mm-hmm. doing it for the same reasons, which are like, you know, it's it's helpful credentialing. They were able to pay him a pretty big advance. He talks about that openly. And so I, I do think there's a pretty good argument for doing traditional publishing. And I plan to do that for my second book, you know, for those sort of reasons. Very nice. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up a good point that there's, if the book is the last step in whatever you're doing, you know, you're at the top of the ladder, then uh, then there's different like considerations in it. Yeah. Then if the book is a stepping stone to something else. And I like to think in terms of optionality, you know, what gives me the optionality for the kinds of things that I want to do later? And if you're trying to give yourself the optionality to spend money to advertise your book, it's really hard to do that if uh, you're making, you know, 15% royalties. 
if you're trying to give yourself the optionality to uh, to get consulting gigs and big ticket speaking gigs, then having a bigger brand prestige on your book really helps. It really helps you with that option. So I think of it in terms of that uh, in many cases. And there's actually the foreign thing, something I haven't thought about much because I the every time I've sold books, uh, the foreign rights have uh, gotten sold to my same mm. publisher. So. I see that I get the copy of the book in <laughs> German, but I don't get the money from it. Like it's, it's all wrapped into the same deal, but it does remind me but that just even if you're down for a second, cause I, I know a lot of people don't, what you just said, will go over some people's heads, but I think it's really interesting. People don't realize when you sell, when you do a book deal, sometimes you just do a book deal for English and sometimes you sell a publisher all the rights and then they go and sell the foreign rights. And so that the, yep. the publishing world's really weird. Yeah. World rights. Well, so what I was going to bring up is even if you're not in publishing a book, this maps really well to other things like indie filmmaking. So right now my wife and I and our business partner are working on a TV series with a producer who has made something like 70 indie films. And, uh, and the secret that he always talks about is with indie films. Yeah. You're cobbling together, you know, friends and family's money to film, you know, $25,000 movie. But where it pays off is when you sell the foreign rights. So you sell the movie, the the license to it in China, and you can make a million dollars. That's where the magic kind of happens in indie filmmaking. And that's why investors are willing to put money into indie filmmaking. Huh, I didn't know and that. so it's that. Yeah, it, that's like the kind of the hidden revenue stream that makes that industry work. And actually, there's a whole thing going on now with, uh, with Netflix and Amazon, all the streaming platforms uh, where... It used to be that even if a movie tanked in the U.S., it still was worth making the sequel because you could sell the rights in India and China and everywhere else, and it actually made it up. So those stats you see on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever are misleading. It's like, oh, this movie cost $50 million and only made $40 million, but over the next five years, they're going to make a ton of money in foreign places, and then they make the sequels. That whole thing, I think just thinking through that principle of I'm making a product and the only way to monetize that product or to make that product worth it, to make the value worth it, is not just the straightforward selling it in Barnes and Noble or whatever you think of. There's all of these other things that it becomes a stepping stone to or secondary kind of revenue streams for it. And I, I think book publishing, you should think of it that way. What are the, the secondary streams that will come out of this? And if there are none, then think, I think, more carefully about uh, the deal that you're getting. I with think your that's publisher. a great point. And, and speaking of stepping stones, we love a segue. It is time <laughs> for a segment that we call Dawn to Dusk. So there are a lot of blog posts when it comes to creativity about morning routines. Like people really like to talk about it. But because we're sick of talking about that stuff, we decided to just play a game about it instead. So how it works is I'm going to name three famous creatives and Shane will have to guess whether they are a night owl or an early bird. This one will be writer edition. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. So first one, novelist Ernest Hemingway, who famously had four wives, all who had at least one book dedicated to them. Do you think he <laughs> was a night owl or an early bird? Interesting. This is one of the things I don't know about Ernest Hemingway. I know he died in Idaho because that's where I'm from and <laughs> we know these things. 
I know he spent time in Cuba because I went to all the places he went to in Cuba. I know he spent time in Paris because I went, I, I like to go to these places where like the ghost of these writers are and go right where they wrote. Um, so I, I know these little tidbits. I don't know if he was a morning person. He, he drank a lot. So I'm guessing he slept in and he also wrote while drinking. So I'm guessing he was a night owl. So Shane, I'm sorry, you uh-huh. the first one wrong. He was actually a morning person. Here's a quick quote from Ernest. He said, I wake at 5.30, work until 8, eat breakfast at home, work until 10, walk a few blocks into town, do errands, go to the nearby municipal swimming pool, which I have all to myself, swim for half an hour, return home at 11.45, read the mail, eat lunch at noon. <laughs> then he keeps going and then he starts talking wow. about alcohol intake. But anyway, yeah, no, he was a morning worker. Who would have guessed? Wow. Who would have guessed? Not yeah. yet. Um, so he... You know, he his four wives that he dedicated the books to, sounds like he had time to take them out for fancy dinners at night. Yeah, he was whining and dining. What happened? <laughs> That's how he got married four times. Um, <laughs> number two, poet, autobiographer, and so much more, Maya Angelou, was she a morning person or a night owl? Oh, I love her. <sighs> I, I mean, I want to say morning person because it seems like this has no correlation, but it seems like, oh, the more noble of a person, you know, they, it's got to be like a morning person. Um, but I, it, because my instinct was wrong about Hemingway, I'm going to guess that she was an unlikely night owl. Shane, oh, <laughs> you are just really. I just uh-huh. like the fact that we equate morality with being a morning person. That's a topic for another day. But anyway, yeah, she was actually a morning person. So she would get up at 5.30 and she would go be working by 6.30. And actually, what's interesting is she rented a hotel room that she used as her office because she liked having sort of a place to get away. And then she'd come Mm. back in the afternoon and be done for the day. What a life. I like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay, last. All right, I'm going to get this one, this next one. Last, but certainly not least, is novelist Michael Chabin. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Who New York Magazine once said might be the perfect writer for the Obama age, which I don't quite know what that means. Was he a morning person or a night owl? Perfect writer for the Obama age. <laughs> I I don't know. Like, yeah, is that referring to the age when we had a, a charming president and there was no plague? <laughs> uh, hmm. Well, all right. So Obama got up early, played basketball. <laughs> Dunked on his Secret Service guys, and then went and uh, you know and, and made the world better and stuff. Uh, so if he's emblematic of the Obama age, we're calling the age the Obama age. Then I'm going to guess that uh, that this is a morning person. Oh, and you are zero for three today. You are dramatically <laughs> just off. He was a night owl. He would work every Sunday to Thursday from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. And he would write a thousand words a day. Michael Chabon, a night owl, and apparently the perfect writer of the Obama age. I, you know, I would love that schedule. I love <laughs> writing at night. Uh, it's, you know, real life makes it less possible to do that. But if I, if I had my druthers, as they say, I would write from 10 a.m. to or 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. every night. Druthers. What a word. Wow. You must be a writer. I don't know what those are. <laughs> I don't know what they <laughs> I don't are know what druthers are. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, the mark of a good writer is you use words that no one uses <laughs> and you don't know what they are. That, that's, that's the mark of a good writer. <laughs> well, we are going to go to our last question. 
Hey, Alan and Shane. This is Owen from Unleash the Knowledge, one of the fastest-growing digital communities for lifelong learners and readers. My question for you guys today is, how important is it for an author to focus on building their audience before their book launch? And what actionable tips can you give this new author on where they should start? Perhaps which platform or medium to focus on, whether that's social media, email, etc. Thanks so much, guys. Looking forward to hearing your answer. So I love this question for a few reasons. One, I love that Owen, first person to take the opportunity to do a little self-promo, like oh, yeah. deservedly. Like, nice work. Yeah, Owen runs an awesome book Instagram that I actually follow. So thank you, Owen. So this question is so important because it actually ties back into the last question. So one thing when it comes to mainstream publishers that I think a lot of people underestimate is how important basically having an audience already is. So these days, books are very much a hit-driven business. And so publishers are looking for people who already have an audience. They don't have to build the audience. And this is specifically nonfiction. Fiction is actually a bit different. But in nonfiction, one of the essential parts of the book sort of selling process, so you write a book proposal before you actually write the full book, which people don't know. You write a book proposal, has like two sample chapters, author bio, all this stuff. But the most important part according to a lot of people, is the marketing plan. And in the marketing plan, what they want to see is that you have an audience, you know how to engage that audience, and you know how to get them to buy books. And so one of the key things is that if you don't already have an audience and you want to write a book and you want to do a traditional publishing deal, you really should first focus on building up that audience. One, because it'll allow you to get that book deal you want to get. But two, because you'll actually have to work and think through the ideas that might eventually go into your book. And so, you know, to answer Owen's question very specifically, the thing I found that is A, the biggest driver of book sales, and B, the thing that publishers most resonate with is actually email newsletters. That is sort mm-hmm. of famously the place where if you have, you know, an email newsletter subscriber, those are the people who care the most about you, who are, you know, most, you know, highest sort of trust level. They let you in their inbox every week, every two weeks, whatever it is, and they're most likely to buy books. And so if there's one platform to focus on, email newsletters. Shane, what do you think? Amen. Yeah. Well, an email, the algorithms don't change like social media do, right? Uh, so that's absolutely, I, I think you nailed it. When I sold my first book proposal, a full 50% of the proposal was the marketing plan. Oh, wow. And yeah, it was like 10 pages of marketing plan, 10 pages of book. And uh, and I actually broke down my thinking on marketing for a book into an equation, uh, which is book sales are a function of exposure to the book. So number of people that get exposed to it, the conversion rate, number of percentage of those people that decide to buy the book and referral rate percentage of those people that then tell other people. So they're thereby increasing the exposure. And I broke down in my marketing plan how I'm going to get millions of people to be exposed to the book, how we're going to make sure that the maximum percentage of people who see the book are going to decide to pick it up, flip it over, buy it, and how to build in some way for referrals, either word of mouth, uh, you know, things that are stories that I pick that I use in the book that are stories that are meant for people to talk about whether they're controversial or just good, you know, bar talk type stories and actual call to actions in the book, you know, by the end, like, Hey, if you like this, share this, like that sort of thing. And, uh, and that, that was really what I think 
was the strength of my, my book proposal. And so the bigger your audience you have, say in your email list, the more you have on that front end of the people that will be exposed to the book and people who already read your stuff or follow you are going to convert at a higher rate than strangers who've never heard of you. So that, that is the formula that I, I subscribe to. It gets tricky though. I mean, I think the fiction thing is really interesting. I, I wonder how many people listening to this are thinking about writing novels or do versus nonfiction. There's a lot of overlap, but a lot of things that are different. My little brother is a, a novelist and he's, first of all, way better writer than me. Like he's the talent in the family. Uh, but his job is so much harder because you don't follow fiction writers the way, like on social media, the way that you follow you know, nonfiction thought leader types, right? You know, and he he writes kind of humorous uh, young adult stuff. And it's like his Twitter feed of funny jokes is just, you know, it's cool, but it, it's not the sort of thing that's going to get millions of followers. By the way, Twitter traffic doesn't convert, like having a million followers doesn't mean you're going to sell a million books. It means you're going to sell 15 books because, uh, you know, and I just want 1% to of those that people- Because people really think just because we live in the social media age, but the thing is that, I know people who've had their books shouted out by literally A-list celebrities with over 10 million Twitter followers, and it had no noticeable change in their Amazon rank. So like, really, Twitter does not sell books. Yeah. And that's, I think, the, uh, the, the big point is you kind of want to do the math of uh, if a thousand people get exposed to this book on, say, Twitter. What percentage of those people are going to click on the link? And what percentage of those people are going to actually buy at this price? And when you start doing the math that way, you know, different audiences, like if, if Alan recommends my book to his audience, higher percentage of people will buy it than if uh, I post it on Twitter. Uh, but even so, you do the math and you can kind of add up that you're going to sell 15 books through a lot of these different ways. The... Uh, but having your own audience, if you know that 100,000 people read your newsletter, which is a lot, uh, but say that's the case, and 20% of them open every newsletter. So you can say, well, if I send five newsletters, 100,000 people will open it. And chances are 10% of them will click on the link. And hopefully 10% of those will buy the book. And that means we're going to sell 2,000 books. You can kind of do that rough math and, uh, and you get an idea of just how important having an audience is. But also leaning on other people's audiences. If you can provide value for someone else's audience, you know, say an interview for someone who has a, a big newsletter where you talk about something that, that those newsletter subscribers will care about, will help them in their lives, that will expose you and your book to their audience. And that I think is the chief strategy you see a lot of authors doing these days, podcast interviews or you know, blog interviews, shout outs from influencers. It's basically people saying to their audience, this will be useful to you. And so it's it's not just building your own audience, but it's finding a way to provide value for other people's audiences. I call that like the dumb word is super connecting. Uh, but uh, but that's, I think, the primary strategy you see working for people who uh, who are trying to launch a book these days. I love that. So you Owen, that's right? Owen, you, you have some, there's some insights in there. Shannon's dropped the knowledge bombs. Um, but with that, I think that brings us home. So, you know, do you have a question for us on anything creativity related that you'd like to hear on the show? Well, visit creativehotlineshow.com from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions, so put us to work. In our next episode, we're gonna be answering a grab bag of listener questions, ranging from the limits of simultaneous invention to the power of deadlines and more. 
Oh, and if you like this episode, we could use your help. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. No, really. It's free. And it means you'll know as soon as the next episode drops. Boom. Bye, Shane. Bye, Alan. Bye. Bye.